If you are just now joining us in service, uh, whether in person or online, whatever has you coming here, my name is Evan Skelton. I'm one of the pastors here, in addition to uh, John and Larry, who you've already heard from in our service. And I want to say a special word of welcome to those who are newcomers here at Bayless. Um, I, I just I want you to know that it's normal for, those, for this, the people who show up to this space to come from a variety of different places spiritually. Some have been a part of this family for some time. Some are new to this family. Some are, are still would consider themselves uh, outside of this community. They, they're not sure if they would confess faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They come with doubts and some very real questions when it comes to Christianity. And tell you what, there's no better place for you to be than here in a church where you can see Christians who take these things seriously and probably have dealt with some of the issues uh, that, and some of the church baggage that you may have had. And so I encourage you to stick around. If you have questions, please do come to me or one of the other leaders, and we'd love to set up a time to be able to answer those for you, maybe even after service. Um, we hope that this gathering, though, most of all, most importantly, helps you make sense of the grace that is found in Jesus Christ and that it makes sense of the Bible's claim that what the, what the gospel does is it forms a new family, a new community that's being transformed by it. A community that is really a community of recovering hypocrites like myself. We're, re we're all recovering from it. We need God's help to walk in step with this good news that we proclaim. But we do believe that the gospel is good news for all of life, and we hope that our service helps you make sense of that. We're in a series, actually wrapping up a series today, um, on discipleship. Not a word we use very often, but, it's, but discipleship has to do with uh, what Jesus called his followers. Those were his students, the ones who um, believed in him uh, to be their Savior and Lord and come, came to understand that his the good news of what he has done in his life, death, and resurrection really was something long anticipated. It was part of God's rescue plan that we're going to look at. Those followers were called disciples. And, to, and Jesus then calls those followers not to sit on their hands, but to make more followers of Jesus Christ and to help those present followers to grow in their obedience and their worship of God. That's what making disciples is all about, making followers of Jesus Christ, helping those followers to follow him, even as we are trying to do so ourselves. And today we're going to end with a question that's really important. We've looked at why we make disciples. We make disciples because history's heading to a place in which Jesus receives worship. And so we start by worshiping now, and we want to invite others to join in that worship that will continue for all of eternity. God deserves glory. And the second thing we looked at is what a disciple is. And I've already said it's someone who follows Jesus. They exchange the burdens of their lives for his burden, which he says is light. They come to him as weary and heavy laden. What is, and then we talked about how do we make disciples, particularly here in the church, and then how do we make disciples through evangelism outside of the church's doors. This week we're answering a question we've not yet really drilled into, but it's in many ways we're going to be yeah, taking some of the things that we've observed over the last several weeks together to answer, where are disciples made next? Where are disciples made next? That's what we're going to be covering today. And I hope you're eager with me to see, again, what Jesus has to say about these things. We're going to look at, what, again, according to Jesus, where should disciples be made next? And we're going to do so by considering some of the final instructions that Jesus left his disciples before ascending to heaven. In Luke 24, verses 44 through 49, which we're going to unpack in three, well, actually two parts, I should say. What the good news is and where the good news goes. 
where the good news, what the good news is, or where the good news is, and where the good news goes. Now, before we dive into our passage, we need to understand a little bit about it, because, I mean, many of us, we've not read this passage before, it's been a while, or some of us are just brand new to re-understanding the Bible. So here's some of the events. Our passage picks up at some point after Jesus has died, and after Jesus has been raised from the dead. Perhaps actually maybe just a few matter, uh, maybe a matter of days afterwards. As much as it might surprise you to hear it though, no one among Jesus' followers expect that he would raise from the dead. No one. And yet Jesus stands in front of them bodily, very much alive. Not as a ghost, but as a living, breathing human person whose body has been transformed, but nonetheless has, is very much physical. In fact, he, right before this, eats fish with them. How, how much more human can you get than to eat with, your, with his followers? This surprised, nonetheless, everyone who is sitting in the room. You see, and we're going to get this into this more uh, in a second, but Jesus spoke of his resurrection um, quite often during his life. He actually clued the disciples in that this was going to happen, but the disciples had largely blown these comments off as they went along, both his comments about his death and his comments about his resurrection. Perhaps because, especially about his death, they figured that Jesus was being a little too hard on himself, a little bit too pessimistic, like, nobody's going to follow me anyways. I'm just going to head to my death. Oh, be encouraged, Jesus. Things are going to be fine. They largely didn't believe that things would end out as he said they would. And so the resurrection largely didn't make sense to them either. Why would they need a resurrection? Isn't Jesus going to be them with them forever? Nothing had quite taken place like that before. Sure, God had raised people from the dead, but a prophet had always done it. A prophet never was raised themselves. Perhaps this is just Jesus telling one of those parables again, you know. But nonetheless, it, when Jesus' death did take place, They were so disoriented that they all abandoned Jesus in fear. They didn't see this coming. They had only prepared for Jesus continuing to be a success, continuing to grow in influence and power, not martyrdom. That was not what they signed up for. And so at the moment of his greatest need, when Jesus was betrayed and taken away by his enemies, his closest friends tucked tail and ran from him. They had lost, and they had lost everything, and now they had failed their master. And now, he's back, standing very much in front of them, showing them his scars, eating in front of them, very much alive. And this could not have thrown them more off balance. No one expected this. In less than a week, the disciples had lost their hope and then gained it back in a way that they had They still had difficulty believing. They were a mess of doubts, like many of us. They had received their king back from the grave, and that king, Jesus, seemed to to believe that their work had just begun. Can you imagine it? What do you think they talked about in those days after Jesus raised from the dead? Luke tells us it was a period of about 40 days that he lived with them. And Luke, though more than any other gospel writer, gives us a sneak peek into what they talked about. And it seems one of the most basic needs his disciples had was to be caught up on what was going on. You see, the whole thing still did not make much sense to them. Have you, uh, let me give you an illustration of this. Have you, so many of our shows today 
have this, uh, we'll start off with a previously on segment, like a two-minute two summary of what's taken place before. I remember when I was in college, one of my favorite TV shows was Lost. Anybody familiar with this show? I mentioned this with my college students, and they had no idea, and I felt super old. But nonetheless, this show was uh, very complicated the longer you went. It was very confusing, and so every week we would, uh, as college students, all hurry to make sure that we were there on time to see it start. Um, I would go uh, every week to a restaurant with some of my friends to watch this, including the girl I was desperately trying to impress. It was Grace, uh, just to relieve any anxieties. But nonetheless, we, um, we watched this every week together, and um, the first two minutes ended up being enormously important because they would go and say, previously on Lost, okay? And they would give you all these key scenes and pieces of dialogue and all these things that you needed to know because... If you uh, were going to watch this next episode, there were key plot details you may not have seen or forgotten or missed along the way, and these details were needed to orient you to what was about to take place, what you should be watching for, how what you are going to see builds upon what has already happened. In other words, it fits the smaller story that you are watching into the larger one, which is exactly what Jesus is doing here with his disciples, his terribly confused disciples. You see, again, his, his resurrection, as wonderful as it was, was unexpected among the disciples. But even more importantly, it was part of a much grander story, a story God had been weaving together since the creation of the world. And notice what Jesus says in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words, he is speaking, that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Again, one of the remarkable features of the New Testament Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all about Jesus' life, is how often Jesus talks about his death before it even takes place. Let me give you one example, and it comes from this one, from Luke's Gospel. Luke 18, verse 31 through 34. In taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man, referring to himself, by the prophets, will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Pretty specific, right? I mean, how much clearer can you get? It's hard not to read those and say, well, that clearly refers to what's about to happen. As much as it might surprise us and the disciples, Jesus' death was not a surprise to him. Over and over again, Jesus tells us where he is heading and why he is heading there, and he doesn't do so in a panic. But verse 34 goes on, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. No kidding. But notice that how Jesus puts it here. He doesn't just say, you should have known, after all, didn't I tell you so? He doesn't give them a grand, well, I told you so. He goes even further than that. He says, you should have known because the scriptures told you so. And which scriptures exactly? Which parts of God's word? All of them. 
He says, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which seem to have been summaries for the three major sections of the Hebrew Bible, what we know today as the Old Testament, the Bible of the disciples, the Bible of Jesus himself. And what exactly does Jesus say that they should have found in their Bible? In this book written over a period of a millennium and a half. What should they have found there? Again, verse 34 says, I mean, sorry, not verse 34. Verse 45 says, everything written about me. Growing up, I remember hearing a, what I thought was a helpful little acronym for the Bible. And I've used this before, so forgive me for this repeated illustration. But basic instructions before leaving earth. B-I-B-L-E. Pretty clever, right? Basic instructions for before leaving earth earth. And largely, that's what I assumed the Bible was, a book of great advice about how to be a good boy who ended up on God's good side rather than his bad side. Sure, Jesus was necessary to take care of my eternity problem, but the rest of the Bible was surely about what I needed to do next. I never knew what Jesus seems to assume until much later in life, that the Bible is about him. How can this be, though, if Jesus' name doesn't ever show up in the Old Testament? And trust me, you can go back to look there. It's not there. Well, even though Jesus, Jesus, that name, Jesus isn't mentioned specifically, explicitly, the role he would come to fulfill very much was anticipated. It is explained at great length. Every page of the Bible builds out not so much a list of more and more expectations, but the story of God's wonderful plan to rescue humanity, a rescue that would come through a certain rescuer, someone it calls the Messiah, though he goes by many names, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Son of David, Root of Jesse, Heir of Abraham, Lion of Judah, Lamb of God, the Servant, the King, Emmanuel. It is said that this prophet who was coming would be a better prophet than Moses, bringing a better law, a priest like Melchizedek, only bringing a better atonement, a king like David, only bringing a better kingdom, a Messiah who would bring us God. In fact, one of his names, Emmanuel, literally means God with us. Jesus isn't just offering a unique perspective on the Old Testament, a rather clever uh, um, example of how we could read the Old Testament if we were so inclined. This turns out to be the only way we are meant to read it. The Bible is not a series, in other words, of disconnected stories. Instead, every hero and villain, every promise and pattern, all weave together in a story underneath the stories. Like you might have a subtle soundtrack throughout a movie, which soon rises throughout that movie to a crescendo. The gospel, the, the assumptions and the preparation for Jesus Christ, this Messiah, Emmanuel, run throughout the Bible. It is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a story about Jesus. And just a few days, or a few or verses earlier, rather, Jesus took to the road of Emmaus. After his resurrection, he appeared with some of his disciples, only they didn't recognize him. He was cloaked and hidden from their view. They thought he was just a fellow traveler. And when they expressed doubt, telling this fellow traveler, who happened to be Jesus, about the events that were taking place in Jerusalem, they expressed 
doubt to the stranger about the tall tales that they were hearing of their teacher's resurrection. Claims that they, that were hard to believe. And Jesus answers back to them, really importantly, in verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's interesting. They express doubt at the resurrection, the fact that Jesus could actually have been bodily raised, and here is Jesus walking bodily with them, and instead of pulling down his hood and saying, oh foolish ones, here am I, he instead points to his Bible and says, here I am. I don't know about you, but don't you wish you could have been on that road in that kind of Bible study with Jesus himself as he opens up the Bible and makes connections to himself? I tell you what, I, if I could have any, like, five minutes, I could time travel, or, okay, probably a couple hours. That's what, what, it, what it was with these disciples. That's, that would have been it. I would love to be a part of this, this Bible study, rather, I mean, if not just the, uh, the study that Jesus is doing with his disciples. But he's doing the same thing. Again, Jesus is saying to the scriptures, it's very hard. The story underneath the stories is a story about him. And I have met many religious people who do not read their Bible like this at all. They read it like I did. Like it was largely a series of disconnected stories with some maybe life coaching thrown in. But if what Jesus says is true, then he not only is he the center of it all, then, he, then it is the only way to read the story sufficiently. Everything in this book either points forward to Jesus or it points back to Jesus. Like the final clue in a mystery, Jesus is the unlocking of God's grand plan. It's where God's plan comes shining through. Oh, this is what God was talking about. But then what does this have to do with discipleship? After all, we're talking about making disciples. Well, to put it plainly, discipleship, following Jesus is about Jesus. Not you, not me, not our local church, as much as we love her. None of those things are the point. Jesus is the point of all history, of all stories, and the point of making disciples is helping one another to obsess over him, to make Jesus' death and resurrection the beating heart of our lives. That's how you know if you're making disciples, is if you are increasing and encouraging a love for him. That is what it looks like to do someone real spiritual good. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love Bible study, but even Bible study can actually be fruitless if it does not lead me to a greater affection for Jesus, a deeper knowledge of the gospel, and a life that walks in step with it. Evangelism, that means also telling someone else who does not currently believe with my, agree with my convictions telling someone else about Jesus, isn't simply offering, a people, offering to people a way to get rid of their anxiety about hell. Evangelism isn't simply a message that you can squeeze a bit more meaning out of your life if you just add Jesus. No, evangelism and discipleship are about leading people to one another sing over the one our hearts were made for, to sing over Jesus Christ. The point of this story and the point of ours 
and everyone else you will come in contact. God's plan is that Christ would be the center of all, and in a sense, disciples are simply taking one another on guided tours of his kingdom, guided tours to him. This leads to something many might find very unexpected, a very practical implication, and a pretty big twist in the story. Number two, where the good news will go. Read with me verse 45 and 46. Then he, again referring to Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. All this pretty much just reiterates what I just said, doesn't it? The scriptures anticipated Jesus' suffering, even his death, as part of the grand story that God has written. In fact, in the other contexts we looked at, I mean, that, I mean, we could look at in the Bible, and I could give you dozens of, contact, uh, dozens of scriptures in which this is, the, is, again, the expectation. Jesus will say he must suffer these things. This is what God has always determined, always planned. He, this is how he always has meant for things to work out with his death and resurrection. But then notice what verse 47 says was also anticipated by the scriptures. Not just his death and resurrection, but that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. I want to take some time looking at this verse specifically to zoom in, if we could, on three very important phrases, or two very important phrases, actually, to all nations, to all nations, that this good news is a good news for the nations, You see, according to Jesus, the Bible not only anticipated the good news of the gospel. It's not just the story underneath the the stories, the thread that ties all of it together. It anticipated that this news would not stay with the disciples. It wouldn't even stay among the Jews. Now, it would go instead to all nations. This may not have seemed like a, it might not seem like a big deal to us after, I don't, know how many of us here would consider ourselves to be Jewish. Many of us would follow in that category of Gentile, a non-Jewish person. It may not seem that strange that the gospel would go to Gentiles, but it certainly was for these early Jews. You see, prior to this, being part of God's people meant being a Jew, being circumcised, coming under God's law. But now Jesus seemed to assume that the boundaries of God's people were expanding, enveloping anyone who would confess faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of status, regardless of skin tone, regardless of circumcision. And for some time after this, the disciples had a really hard time understanding and walking in step with it. A very difficult time wrapping around such an extreme claim. But as Jesus points out, this expectation actually reaches as far back in the Bible as the expectation that his death and resurrection would need to be, uh, need to be the case, that God's Messiah would secure rescue that way. This promise that this good news would go to all nations reach, reaches just as far back, thousands of years, into the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, in which God calls Abraham the forefather of the Jewish nation, making wonderful promises to him. He says to this man that he would make from a childless man a great nation, that his own name would be great. In fact, this was perhaps the announcement of God's 
this first announcement of God's great news and the beginning, the unpacking that God wasn't leaving humanity as it was. But then God promised something else to Abraham. He says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all the families on the earth shall be blessed. In other words, Abraham would be blessed in order to be a blessing. To who? All peoples, all nations, all families on the earth. In other words, not just his. In fact, in Genesis chapter 17, it comes back to this promise. God renames Abram to Abraham and tells him he would be the father of many nations. This promise isn't just limited to this passage. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant? So speaking to his servant that was coming, this Messiah. Is it so too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? So it's referring to the fact that God would bring his people back from exile, remake the people of God, the nation of Israel. But notice what it says next. I will make you as a light for the nations. The servant would not just be a light to the Jewish people, but to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I could literally cite dozens of passages that come from the Old Testament that speak of this universal promise, it's a, but it's as if God's blessing was always meant to spread out from Israel. Yes, in some sense, it is a mystery until Christ reveals it and unpacks it, but in no way contradicts with what God has already said. It's as if his salvation would radiate amongst every people, every nation, every tongue. In fact, isn't that where we began this series in Revelation chapter 7, a vision of the end of history? There's a lot of language right now about being on the right side of history. Well, where is history ending? With a multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, crying out at the top of their lungs, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In other words, it was always God's plan to see Christ at the center of all people being worshipped in every nation, by people of every skin color, from every generation, gathered around Christ, offering the same song of praise. This was always how God determined he would glorify himself with his son, the Messiah, Messiah, the heir of Abraham, the Lamb of God at the center of the story, worshipped by every people group on the earth. Have you thought about this before? That God is saving right now people, gathering disciples from every one of the nations. And one day they will be worshiping right along with you if you are a Christian. And that means on that day, there's going to be a lot of people, in fact, the large majority of people, who neither look like or sound like you. This is why Christians must be a global people. After all, their God is not a tribal God. He will not be owned or domesticated by any people group or tongue as much as people have tried. In fact, if I can just be honest, I worry when Christians begin to merge their Christianity with American nationalism. Especially when we say things like, America is the greatest nation on the face of the earth as if this was a Christian assumption. America is not God's chosen nation any more than the 4th of July is a Christian holiday. For as grateful as we are for, the nation, for our nation and the privileges we currently enjoy, God is not a tribal God. He is the God of men and women, 
children and adults, Bosnians, Italians, Nepalese, Iraqis, Jews, and Gentiles. And he is gathering them from every nation, among every people, in every language, in order that he would be worshipped by his image bearers in the wonderful diversity in which he has made them. As John Stott put it, we must be global Christians with a global vision because God is a global God. Did you know, according to the Joshua Project, there are 7,418 people groups which are still considered unreached. That means the number of Christians in that group is so small that they are unable to evangelize their kindred without some outside help. To put this clearly, that means 3.23 billion people. 42% of the world's population has yet to hear of the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Even as I say that, I'm, I'm really convicted by it. I mean, how, how limited is my perspective? How much do I get bound up in my own day-to-day -day worries? Not that those don't matter. God cares about those things. But how often is my vision so myopic? How much is, is what I assume what God's doing in the world just bound up with me and my city and my country? As, listen to what David Platt says about this reality. And I just even tremble saying these things. A soft drink company has done a better job of getting brown sugar water to the nations than the church of Jesus Christ has done in getting the gospel to them. Even as it is true that God is the one who accomplishes his mission, he is the one who saves, he is the one who gathers disciples and will get glory for it in the end. We sh this should bring us conviction and urgency, friends. This is one of the reasons that every local church, regardless of size, must care about raising up and sending workers into the field that Christ himself says is ready for harvest. In fact, I'm convinced that some of the next generation of these creative, persevering, cro culture-crossing missionaries are right in this room. Uh, but did you know that you don't actually need to cross an ocean to get involved in this? I want us to just consider our neighborhood. Friends, did you know that over the years, our community has become one of the most internationally diverse communities in the entire city? For example, right now, we host a uh, in, our, in our chapel building. We host a church of Nepali men and women, uh, I should say Bhutanese Nepali women and men who grew up in refugee camps. A citizen of neither nation. Neither nation wanted them. And, they, and most of their kindred, most of their family and friends either identified as Hindu or Buddhist. And they are led, this church, by a Christian pastor who is right now traveling back to Nepal, not just to adopt a baby girl, but to begin preparations to plant more churches there, plant churches that we might have a hand in partnering in and helping and equipping, raising up indigenous leaders to proclaim the gospel where it has not gone before. But it's not just Nepali people. Our local schools within walking distance from our church, I encourage you, go on the way home today, drive past Bayless schools and pray for them. They gather students from 49 different nations, 49 different nations, Bosniaks, Gypsies, Kurdish, Syrian, Burmese, Afghani, just to list some of them. We have in our city, in fact, in fact the largest population of, Bosnian, uh, Muslim, uh, of Muslim Bosniaks outside of the capital of Bosnia itself, including several of my personal neighbors, some of whom 
Grace and I were just talking about this week, fled from the massacres, the slaughters that took there. Even the elementary school principal that I met with pointed out to the fact that we are less than one mile from three mosques and one Buddhist temple. In our neighborhood, one out of ten of our neighbors were born, out of the, born outside of the United States, many of them from people groups that would be still considered unreached and unengaged by the gospel. Let me ask, does that make you nervous or does that make you excited? Just think about it. Our church's story, and we're, we're honest about it, included a long period of decline, a period in which we became more and more ingrown, fearful of our own future. And yet, even then, during that time, God in his merciful providence was moving into our backyard, people who need active Christians more than ever. And I'm convinced as God continues to mercifully breathe life into this place, as he has and is continuing to do, that he is doing so that we might reach these neighbors with the gospel. As John Piper puts it, God is pursuing with omnipotent passion a worldwide purpose of gathering joyful worshipers for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He has an inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of his name among the nations. Therefore, let us bring our affections into line with his. And for the sake of his name, let us renounce the quest for worldly comforts and join his global purpose. That certainly can include your checkbook, as we go with Annie Armstrong in the, uh, the support of the North American Mission Board, planting churches in a North American context, which is increasingly, increasingly post-churched, unre, uh, more and more uh, unengaged with the gospel. But it may involve, in a way, you have never considered before. I, in fact, what if God has purposes for your life? that you may have never considered, regardless of what stage of life you find yourself in. Might God send you to make intentional friendships with refugees in our city, as some are doing through Good Neighbor Initiative? Yes, some of whom don't speak English very well. Might God send you to have another neighbor into your home, or in times of COVID, relating on the front lawn, Asking where they came from, what, it was, what it's like for them to be here, what challenges they have faced along the way. Asking them more about the religion that, they come, that, they, that they've grown up with. And might God give you the opportunity to explain a gospel which is as much for them as it is for you. Where do we make disciples? Anywhere there are not disciples already. But let me give a second implication. And for this we need to focus a little closer to home. Good news for us. I don't think it'll surprise anyone that, I, that our world, I think, is more divided than ever, regardless of who sits in the White House. I think we can agree on that. I think we're longing for more unity as a society than ever before. But the thing is, we're also a society that puts a high value on our individual differences and our individual freedoms. I think we're finding that it's actually impossible to hold on to both. It's impossible to hold on to unity and this, I would say, idolatrous priority of individual difference. 
After all, these differences, whether it's gender or skin color or ethnicity, aren't just minor differences. And these differences, if we're honest, have led to some pretty unequal outcomes in our society, regardless of the change in laws. As a result, we as a culture have responded to this, not just by calling out the reality, but by separating, by sorting ourselves into, by these differences, into different groups. By sorting ourselves into those on a spectrum of who are more oppressed and more oppressed and less oppressed based on the identity markers we carry. And it's not just ethnicity, gender, or race anymore, but now we're given new categories of sexual orientation and gender identity. I recognize it's difficult for many, and I'm, I teach at a school where about 75% of the population is not Christians, even though the school would be a Baptist one. It's difficult for my students to be taught today by a so-called white, cisgender, heterosexual male, although I don't love all the terms in that sentence. And because we have begun to rank one another on a scale of privilege and oppression, we also begin to rank one another by how morally superior our group is in comparison to the other one. If we're on the right side and if they are on the wrong side, and the more we do, the more we other the other groups, the more we define ourselves in opposition to the other groups, seeing very little hope for reform or reconciliation. Instead, we resort to dehumanizing one another on both sides, to name-calling, to the growing bitterness of fearful resentment, simply for disagreeing with us and with our particular definition of happiness. What options does our culture give other than to shame censor, cancel, or guilt one another into silence. For all of our talk of unity, it's hard to say what we can unite around. Even basic human dignity today is on, sh on shaky footing. It's hard to say when the momentum of this growing animosity in our culture will ever stop. Now that's not to say that there isn't real oppression even now going on regardless of what government. Even at a systemic level, injustice that we can con contribute to, even unconsciously. Our history is full of examples of how power can corrupt, and the Bible is too. It has a, a very wide understanding of sin and its effects. The Bible assumes that sin has not just affected human hearts, but what humans create. It also teaches that humans are experts at self-justification and in self-protection by seeing themselves as not part of the problem, the problems out there with them. And it's also, the Bible also teaches that power, the, particularly the powerful, can be experts at taking their privileges for granted and refusing to surrender their rights. The Bible also assumes that walking in godliness will result in a just life. And I realize all of these are hot-button issues for us right now, but I fear many... Even Christians are beginning to buy into the same divisiveness and anger that is dividing our culture. They isolate themselves, many Christians, with everyone else from the people that disagree with them, retreating into our private groups and blaming those people for what's wrong with the world. One of the most basic problems with that is when we do so, we act as if the gospel is not actually for everyone. It is only good news for our private tribe, for those who find it interesting or find that it helps them feel a little bit more stable in the world or helps them sleep at night. We're hesitant to bring our Christian faith out into public. After all, we don't want to shove it down anyone's throat, right? They don't want to talk about this. Do they really want to hear it? 
I'm convinced, yes, even as people bristle at talking about religion today. Of course, the gospel presses back on our culture. It presses back on every culture, friends, every generation. It actually offers, though, the unity that we are all longing for. A hope that we can actually unite around, regardless of where we are located or how we identify. Friends, it turns out the gospel offers the only real hope for unity because it offers a new story for anyone to be swept into. Yes, the gospel will reorient your life. That's every life. But in doing so, the gospel gives a new common identity to those who hope in it. A new identity grounded in something even more fundamental than what you put down on a census form or a form in a doctor's office. Friends, the Bible teaches that no one group is more sinful or more morally superior than another. In fact, sin is pervasive and universal, and every culture comes with its own sinful idolatries. Every culture will also have its own injustices. No one group is more sinful than another. If you have trouble admitting that, you need to go back to our Bibles. But the Bible also teaches that no one group has special access to God's love. Anyone, literally anyone, who would put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins can receive it without distinction. Anyone who would respond to Jesus' call, as verse 47 puts it, the call to repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as Galatians 3 puts it, for as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This verse has been often misinterpreted. This doesn't eradicate our differences. The Bible would be very clear that male and female are created gifts from the Lord. In fact, it dignifies these differences, particularly ethnicity, nationality, gender, and personality. These are part of God's wonderful creative pattern, and God intends to be worshipped again by the full diversity of his human creatures. God doesn't, in other words, want us to be colorblind. But the Bible dignifies these differences by placing them underneath a new, even more fundamental identity. Notice verse 27 says, All those who trust in Christ, regardless of sex, station, or sin color, have been, skin color, have been baptized into Christ. This means our differences are bound up with him now, and it's only in right relation to Jesus Christ through faith that these differences can finally be celebrated. Now, I need to say a word on, that doesn't mean that the Bible, um, that all of our modern categories all of our modern groupings are ones that the Bible will submit to or celebrate. I need to be very clear on this. Specifically, all of the splintering group identities under the letters LGBTQ+. Certainly, the gospel would affirm the dignity of those who identify as gay and transgender persons. And I recognize that may include some of us here. Hear from me, according to the Bible, you are made in the image of God. Deserving not only of rights as individuals, but of love and compassion from others. I'm sorry that many religious people have not extended that to you. Jesus does. But it's important, again, that the Bible does not affirm these categories as identity markers, as it 
would affirm categories like ethnicity and gender. These last categories, ethnicity, gender, race, are power of God's creative diversity, whereas the former of gender identity and, and, and sexual attraction or sexual orientation are expressions of the effects that sin has had on our basic nature. I realize this flies in the face of so much that we assume today and one day may even get someone like me in legal trouble. But the gospel frees us, friends, to reject the lie that these newly identified identities need to be our identities, our source of dignity, our belonging and meaning. In fact, it gives us a new identity that is so much more stable and satisfying. It gives us what we need to say no to some of our deepest desires. Friends, the gospel is a gospel for all people. It subverts the binary our culture teaches us to assume of oppressed and oppressors, and it does so without eradicating the difference. Instead, it unites human beings by giving them a common story, a common identity to respond to all who would respond to that good news in repentance to receive the forgiveness of sins. Friend, if you are a Christian, according to this passage, you're a witness of these things. Now, I need to be very clear about what we mean. Witness means to bear witness, like you might in a court trial. We're not the same kind of witnesses that, say, the apostles would have been as eyewitnesses of the resurrection. We're witnesses in a different kind of sense, though, I I think in a very genuine way, because Christians are only Christians because someone has borne witness about the gospel to them, has testified to these things that they may not have seen firsthand, but they've seen its power firsthand. The one who has passed on the gospel. Any Christian is a Christian because the gospel was passed on to them that they might pass it to others. Witnesses of these same things. Inviting others to join this one family to enter into this common story that is the story behind all other stories. And you know what the hope of this too? To enjoy and experience the same spirit. Which means you can greet those who do not look like you, sound like you, but worship the same God as brother and sister is a spirit that unites us and empowers us for this very task until God brings it to fruition. Friends, where do we make disciples? Anywhere that there's, where disciples are not. What does that mean for you, though? Where has God called you to bear witness? What power are you relying on to do so? Is it his? Do you want to experience him? Do you want to experience him and his power in full measure? Be at work in this. Expect him to work. Expect him to send you, yes, into uncomfortable territory where you're going to often put your foot in your mouth and you're not going to be sure what comes next. But do you expect that God can save any? After all, he saved you. And you weren't the, yeah, you're, you're not the bee's knees. Maybe I'm just talking to myself. But friends, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we uh, come to you as those who want to be faithful in these things. And we praise you that the good news of the gospel can come to anyone. We're in a culture that's very divided, that's putting us at odds with one another, that's forcing us into categories in which you would not force us. Lord, you've, created, you've established so many creative differences in, in us, and I'm, I'm just very grateful that one day we're going to see your creative intentionality shown off when we worship Jesus forever. And um, Lord, but we, um, we want to experience more of it today in our church. We need to be surrounded by those who do not share the same story as ours, but in another sense they do because they are bound up with Jesus now. We want to extend the gospel to those who our culture would tell us to avoid, to stay away from, even to hate. 
because we were once enemies of God and God brought us near. What hope could we have to do so other than the gospel itself and the spirit of God that lives within us? Would be faithful proclaimers, faithful witnesses to this glorious name, be a church that makes disciples, who makes disciples, who makes disciples. We can't do this apart from you. We pray for Christ's sake alone. Amen.